Our scripture lesson comes from Genesis 9, verses 18 to 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, kind of a, a, a kind of a bizarre passage this morning, huh? Uh, in uh, in a lot of ways, uh, I'm kind of a fan of old time sitcoms, um, old school sitcoms. I love Lucy, um, Andy Griffith, Three's Company. I'm getting nothing in return. Uh, this passage uh, reads a lot <laughs> in my mind uh, like a sitcom. Uh, we have uh, a dad who decides to, to grow a vineyard, uh, has just a little but uh, too much to drink, gets drunk, passes out naked, only to be found by one of his sons who thinks this is funny and something to tell his brothers about. And then they come in and I just I can imagine the scene with them holding a blanket and trying to back into the room. Uh, trying to avoid having to see their father naked uh, and walking backwards until they see his toes and then laying the blanket down. But still, all this, uh, it, it, at the end of the day, it's kind of a, it, it's a bizarre passage, right? What, what's it doing here? What, why, why would God think it necessary to include this narrative at this point in Genesis? It's a great question. <laughs> um, on top, of, on top of all that, uh, just the bizarreness uh, scenario that we, we come across here, um, and this is just a, this is a free uh, Old Testament uh, lesson on studying the Old Testament. Anytime you come across a narrative, like a lot of the narratives that we've come across in Genesis, uh, you always you want to look for, to understand the key point of the passage, uh, something that God does or God says. Usually that's the key to understanding what is going on? What's the point of the narrative in the Old Testament? And guess what? God neither says anything nor does he do anything. So for all those reasons, it's, a, it's an interesting passage to come across. Nevertheless, here we are, and we will try to do the best we can to understand what God still might have us to learn. I, by the way, just so you know, um, you may have been aware that I, I preached through Genesis. It's probably been 10 years since I've preached through Genesis. 
as I went back and started pulling up my notes, uh, I, apparently I skipped this passage <laughs> the first time. Uh, but this time we're going to give it a shot and see if perhaps God still shows up and has something to say to us. So nevertheless, here's the passage, and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to, to be our help and guide. Jesus, we do ask that you would send your spirit now. Um, we, we, we do come across a passage that uh, is uh, likely uh, the first audience would have had a, a, lot more reason, uh, a lot more understanding and comprehension of what's happening um, but it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a bizarre passage in a lot of ways to us. And yet, nevertheless, here it is. You saw to it in your good providence to keep it as part of your word. And so we do ask that your Holy Spirit would come and speak to us, uh, surprise us even, what we might glean from even this text. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the, uh, the passage starts off. Uh, it's actually a pretty good start. Uh, Noah... Uh, sorry, in verse 20, the beginning, sort of the beginning of the passage, Noah began to be a man of the soil. Now, that's actually a pretty good starting place to a passage here in Genesis because, remember, recall from last week, he, Noah is, in a way, kind of a, another Adam. There's a new beginning. There's a new creation happening. Uh, the, the original culture, cultural mandate is being reestablished by God. And so to hear that Noah, this next Adam, the second Adam, is working the ground, that's a good start. Uh, he's, he's, he's doing what was originally intended for God's image bearers. And further, more than that, not simply working the ground for survival, but he's actually producing something that God had in mind from the very beginning, to be a source of joy for his image bearers. As the psalmist says in 104, a great recount of creation, the psalmist says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Now, unfortunately, however... Like all good gifts from our creator God, gifts can be abused. They can be consumed for less than ideal purposes and reasons. And so we're told that Noah enjoyed his drinking and imbibing just a little too much. (laughs) He ends up, in fact, in a compromising, embarrassing, shameful situation, naked, Somewhere and somehow that one of his sons regrettably witnesses him in his undignified, drunken, naked stupor. Noah did this. <laughs> the one who, was, who had just celebrated the previous passage, just celebrated Yahweh's deliverance for him and his family with a sacrifice and just entered into a covenant with God, directly, almost face-to-face even, that's something that not many human beings over the course of human civilization have been able to say that they have done, to directly enter into a covenant with Yahweh. This is the one we were told in chapter 6, verse 9, that he was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. 
Subsequently, we saw how Noah did all that the Lord commanded him, even as strange and outlandish as God's plans must have sounded to Noah pre-flood and to all of his family and to all of his neighbors for those that were paying attention to what Noah was doing with a hammer. And yet he faithfully and fully obeyed. In chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. This is God speaking directly to Noah. For I, Yahweh, have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Life is good for Noah right now. This is a good season. He can surely palpably feel and sense God's favor. Because everything we've, t- we've been told thus far about Noah is that he walked with God. He was faithful. He was righteous. Noah is a model believer in Yahweh. If there was a, an ancient Near Eastern dictionary and it had an entry, follower of Yahweh, we would see Noah's picture. What does it look like to walk faithfully with God? Look at Noah. Well, sort of. Sometimes. Here we see another side to Noah. We see a side that demonstrates he certainly was far from being a perfect human being. He too, just like you and I, was affected by the fall. And by the fact that the seeds of evil reside in every heart, even from our youth, as the Genesis author has told us on multiple occasions. So what does this tell us? What does this mean for us? Well, first of all, I would say that what this tells us is that a genuine reading of the Bible will not yield a posture towards its main characters. That they are some kind of spiritual, super spiritual, flawless human beings. If you are honestly reading the Bible, you will see again and again, Every human being, save for one, that you encounter on these pages, though they may demonstrate great faith in their lives, will at some point disappoint you. King David, a man that we were told was a man after God's own heart, selfishly uses his position of power to commit adultery with another woman, And then with that power, has her husband killed? Peter. At one point, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. But just shortly after that, Peter demonstrates he completely misunderstands Jesus' ministry as the suffering servant. And Jesus has to look Peter's way and say, get behind me, Satan. Peter will also go on to even deny knowing his teacher, knowing his friend. Even after he swore up and down to Jesus face to face, they can take my life, I will not disown you. We could go on. You see, if the biblical authors are trying to fabricate a story in order to invent a new religion, they actually undermine their 
dishonest efforts by including some pretty damning events in the lives of those who are seemingly supposed to be the heroes of their stories. The biblical authors, therefore, are either, I would make the case, incredibly stupid, if that's the case. They're either incredibly stupid or dreadfully inept if they're writing to try to convince us of something they know to be untrue. No, I think it's more reasonable that the authors weren't intentionally making up stories. Rather, they were simply retelling the events as they happened. Words and all. You'll never, ever see the biblical authors excuse or minimize or try to hide the faults and flaws of the main characters in the biblical storyline. And that tells us, sitting here today, that you and I should always be careful that we aren't giving an inordinate amount of honor and respect to and expectation of our leaders, especially our spiritual leaders, whether they be pastors, elders, other speakers, well-known authors, they all have the capacity to disappoint us. And please understand, I don't say that in a spirit of cynicism. It's simply to make the point that we must be vigilant in avoiding putting certain individuals on a pedestal in a way that would be detrimental and perhaps even cause a crisis of faith were they to fall off. You see, the biblical author's honesty about its main characters demonstrates that the point is that these stories are never ultimately about the human characters at all. The Noahs, the Davids, the Peters are never the heroes of the story. Ultimately, these stories demonstrate that time and time again, it's the God of Noah, it's the God of David, it's the God of Peter who is the hero. At best, these biblical characters are simply pointing to the true, ultimate hero by their words and actions. And that's because the true hero, Yahweh, God, is not like you and me in some very important ways. You see, God never has a slip-up that puts him and his actions in a compromising situation. While we may at times question his timing and not understand fully his responses to our prayers or even confuse our failure to see and understand his response as silence, as ignoring us, God never does anything that could be interpreted as cruel or unjust or even foolish. God is the one who consistently and without fail remains faithful. In all that he does and says, God remains faithful to his bride. God is the one who is never tempted to disown or deny his relationship with his people, ever. God is the one who provides all that his children ultimately need. 
God is the true champion. God is the one who defends his people from all their enemies. Time and time again, God is the sustainer. God is the protector. God is the deliverer. And he does this even in, and may I add, especially in the midst of uncertain times. Times that ordinarily humans are most, you and I as humans, are most vulnerable to rising levels of anxiety and angst and fear. But the storyline of the Bible is never, once you get through this difficult season that you're currently in, and you have a greater sense of certainty about your circumstances, (laughs) then you will finally experience that closeness and intimacy with your God that all who follow Jesus deep down long to experience. The Bible never says that. Rather, the storyline is more often than not what we see in Isaiah 43, where we are told, when you pass, this is God speaking through his prophet, when you pass through the waters. Now, remember in our time in Genesis, when an Israelite hears waters, he or she thinks chaos, trial, troublesome. A bri- the, the, the song, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, comes to mind now. When you pass through the waters, when you pass through the waters, again, not when you get to the other side of the waters, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, I'm the Holy One of Israel. I'm your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. Fear not. I am with you. Friends, that, those words are for you. They're for me. They're for Rez Prez. And those words are for Rez Prez right now, not five years ago, not five years in advance. They're for Rez Prez right now, in this moment. Human characters, human people, human leaders, either the biblical narrative or currently in our present lives, are never the Savior. Our God is the Savior. And this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, we now know Jesus, God's Son, is the Savior. Listen, a time of transition like Res Prez is in right now can absolutely be filled with lots of anxiety and fear and angst over what's coming next. It's natural. It's expected. But the Savior of Rez Prez loves you so much that he longs for even this time to not be a time to put on hold the full sense of his presence and pleasure and care until your next pastor arrives. But for Rez Prez to right now have her knowledge of her Savior deepened, even in the midst of a time of waiting. 
you already figured out pretty quick. Your inner pastor's not your savior. You know your elders are not your savior. Those that have been nominated to potentially serve as your next elders are not your savior. Your next pastor is not your savior. Jesus is Res Presence's savior. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the anticipated and even expected level of angst, that can come, excuse me, with waiting. Always has the potential to become a season where we take off our eyes off of our Savior as the one who is the ultimate provider for all of our needs, for all of his church's needs, for all of his people's concerns. Or it can become a season to find our relationship and intimacy deepened with him, even in the midst of our waiting. This passage actually affords us the opportunity to consider one possible way that that can be the case is we can actually learn something about ourselves and how to specifically navigate our personal failures. You see, this is not the first time, if you'll recall, that the state of someone's nakedness became center point, centerpiece, excuse me, in the narrative. The state of nakedness was the occasion, yes, for this particular shameful experience by Noah in Genesis 9, but it was also the setting and state for the very first couple to experience in Genesis 3 for the very first time something that you and I know very well, and that is shame. The last thing we were told in Genesis 2 was that the first couple living in a state of genuine innocence that is now completely foreign to you and I, me, both knew each other. Our first parents knew each other. fully naked, and were without shame. They were completely exposed to each other through and through, not just physically, but emotionally and relationally and psychologically. They could see everything about each other. They knew everything about each other, and neither of them at that point were overcome with the dreaded sense of fear that you and I have when someone else comes across or sees parts of us that we thought we had done a pretty good job at hiding from them. But immediately after Adam and Eve rebelled and did their own thing, for the first time, we are told specifically in their nakedness, they felt exposed in a way that ushered in a flood and a rush of shame. And again, you and I know that state very well. But as much as our first parents felt that initial sense of shame, what happens here in Genesis 9 is on a whole new level. Ham's actions, Noah's son here, are actually callous, sadistic. They're cruel. Now, we are distanced in, in culture and societal norms from this 
ancient Near Eastern world, yes. But I think most of us probably have an appreciation that in that time and age and, and, and situation, among one of the highest values would have been the honoring and respect of elders, older people in your community in general, and mother and father in particular. And so what Ham does, therefore, to his father, instead of coming across his father, seeing him in a compromising scenario, and seeking to cover it himself, goes and seemingly gleefully proclaims to his brothers what he had just witnessed. Rather than being an agent of kindness and grace, he selfishly exploits the situation. This is what evil does. This is what evil and cruel motives do. They pounce on the weakness and exposure of the vulnerability of others. And to be exposed in that way is a very disheartening thing to experience. We know what it is, what it's like when our faults, when our weaknesses, when those parts of ourselves that we despise, that we have regrets over, that we had put so much time and effort into hiding, and in fact had, been, had, had become pretty darn sophisticated at hiding, when those parts are exposed, we melt. We disintegrate. When things we're embarrassed by or sorrowful over become exposed in the presence of other human beings who we desire to know and experience respect from and be esteemed by, it can be absolutely crushing. But there is very good news this morning for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who are in the true hero, the true savior of the Bible, the savior of this world, the savior of Res Pres, the savior of your life. There are two things right now that are simultaneously true. On the one hand, there's absolutely nothing, nothing you could ever do or be to even slightly impress Jesus or get his attention or inspire him to like you. <laughs> nothing you could ever do will ever shock him into being impressed with you. <laughs> nothing. The way to enjoy being in relationship with him is not trying to do or be something that will make it worth it for him to love you. And at the very same time, there is nothing so bad that you could ever do that would cause him to feel one iota of embarrassment over ever calling you his beloved or his child or his brother or sister. There's nothing he doesn't see or know about you. There's nothing you could hide from him, though you may for a long time hide it from other human beings. He sees it. He knows. And guess what? It doesn't cause him to look away. It doesn't cause him humiliation when your name comes up in heavenly cocktail parties. 
And so to find out that our standing with God, the God of all creation, who put the stars in place, yet got his hands dirty to create you and me, to create humanity, the God who is infinite, who's all-powerful, and yet vulnerable and willing to enter into our own mess through his son, Jesus, on this earth. To find that our standing with that God is not and cannot be either further enhanced by something we do or become on the one hand. At the same time, cannot be diminished or threatened on the other. (laughs) Is beyond human comprehension. But it is the beauty of the gospel. It is nevertheless true. The rest of the passage gets a little odd, and I would just quickly sum it up by saying, at least for the original audience, what's happening is they're understanding why it is that all these other nations are in the land that God's calling them to go in and saying, this is going to be your land someday. It explains why all these other nations have gone so far away from God's reign. They themselves become what the rest of the world was prior to the flood. I can't tell you, today's scholars can't tell you why Noah curses not Ham himself, but Ham's son. <laughs> but for the, for the ancient, the original audience, they understand where the line came from of those who were not God-fears. In fact, were violent societies and communities. But, What the brothers do is a wonderful picture, as we close, of how our older brother handles those parts about us that you and I are most ashamed of. In the same way that they cover their father's shame, so our brother covers ours. So much so that on a morning like this, as I was driving in in the snow, I don't know if you love, you're all for Madison. I hope you like snow because that's what you have. That's your, I love snow. And I, I have to admit, though, uh, I've been actually kind of surprised at how Madison people drive and kind of interact in the snow. I thought, like, you know, that it would be, uh, that you would be, ex- your Madison uh, fellow citizens would be experts at driving in snow. That's just not the case. Um, uh, in fact, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, you, you're driving and you, you're, you're recognizing you, you, you know, you have to drive slower. And if there's two lanes, uh, you know, I've, I've had people like come past me and then start to move over right in front of me as we're coming up to a stoplight and almost right, almost touching my bumper. I'm thinking you wouldn't do that if it wasn't snowing. Why would you do it now? The other, as I was coming into, uh, uh, sorry, I don't know my streets. Uh, but as I, as I was turning off of Monroe onto the street, um, there were people that had gotten out of their car. Now, the, the, these back roads right here are not, they haven't been plowed that well. And I'm making a right turn. There are people, I promise you, standing right in the middle of the street, laughing, having a good time after they just locked their doors. They're heading over to the coffee shop or whatever. They look at me. They don't even look surprised. And I'm thinking, if you don't keep walking, I can't stop. They eventually started walking, but 
oblivious to the danger that they were in. Not sure why I told you that story. Anyway, <laughs> I still love snow. And here's the beauty of what even the prophets, how the prophets speak of snow. Because as much as you and I have places, things in our lives, that causes great shame. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. With the prophet, we can say, as gorgeous as this snowfall is, as red and as crimson as your sinful, shameful stains are, they are now white as snow. They have been fully covered by the crimson blood of Jesus Christ, your resprez, the world's Savior. That's the truth. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for how you provide images for us in our daily lives that so well illustrate how you have cared, loved us to the uttermost. Help us to, even as we look at this snow and see the land, the, 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 the fields covered in this beautiful white blanket, knowing that there is, some, there is some dirt and mud underneath, but it is covered in this beautiful white blanket, so our sinful shame has also been covered by your blood. And even now you have given us a meal to regularly remind us of that fact and that reality. Help us to once again believe this. Believe that you are truly a good Savior. That you are fully worthy of our complete trust with all of our life. With all the uncertainties, with all the shame. You are the Savior that we need and you provide. Help us to believe that for the first time or the thousandth we pray. For Christ's sake. Amen.